There are some things worse than dying, like living a day without the king. That's true. You know, it's been said life is a series of trade-offs. If you want to attain the highest level of the video game you play all the time, your grades are likely going to suffer. If you want to be a really good athlete, you're going to have to sacrifice to be able to do that. Life offers us lots of opportunities and lots of options. And so much of what wisdom means is knowing which things to devote yourselves to and which things don't deserve your time, your energy, your effort, your devotion, and most certainly your worship. There are some things worse than dying. The Apostle Paul put it this way, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ in me is what I'm all about now. And that changes everything for us now when we die with Christ. If you're a Christian, that's what it means happened to you. It's a series of trade-offs. We've been talking all week about being a Christian in an increasingly hostile world. And so that means if you become a Christian, you're going to have a level of hostility expressed toward you you haven't had yet. It means your life in some ways is going to get harder. But you need to ask yourself, is that a worthy trade-off? Do I gain something that's worth maybe even being persecuted in my life for my belief in Jesus, for the way I live my life? And so we have got to realize that we have a decision to make. We all have a decision to make. And everything you devote yourselves to and say yes to is going to require no's as well. What are you going to say no to? I played football for 14 years, and then I played high-level competitive flag football when I retired from real football for 20 years. <laughs> I've played a lot of football. And I was playing in a highly competitive flag football game one time, and I thought someone had thrown motor oil in my eye in the midst of a, a play because there were all these black things in my left eye. And so I was putting eye drops in it. I was trying to wash it out, and, and it just wouldn't go away. So I finally went to an eye doctor, and I said, what's going on here? And he said, you have what's called floaters. And I said, on the outside of my eye, he said, no, on the inside of your eye, something happened. You took a hit or something, and it broke off some of the vitriol gel in the back of your eye, and it's floating around inside your eye. And I said, no, doc, it can't be, because I can see it. <laughs> and he said, I know you can see it. You remember 10th grade biology when you learned that you actually see going out of your eye? Remember, it bounces off your retina. It was a wild experience. And I said, and people say there's no God. That's awesome, Doc. That's awesome. So what do I do? And he said, well, you don't do anything. Your brain will work around it eventually. And it did. It's amazing. But what that actually was was the beginning of a detached retina, it's called. So as time went by, I started to have what's called a shadow down here, and I just wasn't quite sure what it was. I had never even heard about this sort of thing. So over time, it started to increase this little black thing down here. And I said, well, it's just a big old floater, I guess, settling down there. Well, I was out on a date with my wife one time. Yes, married people date. We go on dates. 
And uh, we, were, we got out of the parking lot. We're going into a restaurant, and this little black spot in the bottom of my eye went, and it went about halfway up my eye. And I said, oh, this is bad. So I called my doctor, I made an appointment, and I went in the next day, and he said to me, Donna was there, he said to me, you have a detached retina, and it is incredibly close to your ocular nerve in the middle of your eye, and if you even wait a few more hours, you very well may go blind. So we need to do surgery right now. I don't mean in an hour, I mean right now, or you'll go blind in your, your left eye. I said, okay, what are my options? He said, well, we could check you into the hospital. We could put you under. Anesthesia's always got risks. And then we would just, we would just make incisions in your eye, and we'd go back there, and we'd try to, try to fix the, the retina. And he said, but there's another option, too. But only if you can take it. I said, do tell, Doc. And he said, well, what we could do is right here in the office... With you awake, we could take what's called a nitrogen probe and slide it between your skull and your eyeball around to the back of your eye and freeze your retina back onto your eyeball with negative 70-degree nitrogen. <laughs> So, what do I do? He said, it's actually safer, but it's incredibly painful. And there's nothing we can do to numb the pain when it's the back of an eyeball. And I said, bring it on. Let's go. So, <laughs> it, was, it was one of the most grueling, excruciating things you could ever imagine. Have you ever had an ice cream headache? You know what that is? You know, I, it, it's pretty bad, right? And you're like, oh, you know, I heard you oh, put your thumb on the roof of your mouth, and it's bad, and you can't make it go away. Well, think about an ice cream headache like times a thousand behind your eye. Yeah, it was brutal. Now, why would I ever let anybody put something between my eye and my skull and freeze my eyeball? Why would I do something completely? painful and difficult like that because I wanted to see, <laughs> right? That, that's why I would do that. The, the trade-off for me couldn't have been more worth it. I can see really well out of this eye. They eventually had to put a new lens in there, which is another amazing thing they can do, but, but I can see really well out of this eye. That was a worthy trade-off, wasn't it? It was difficult. It was painful. Donna stayed in the office and watched it happen. She said, my feet were going like this and going all crazy. But why would I do that? Because I want to see. My sight is precious to me. It's an amazing gift from God. I don't want to lose it. So I will go through the difficulty of that surgery to be able to see. See, life's trade-offs, isn't it? And, and being a Christian, in many ways, is a trade-off. You need to ask yourself, is trusting Jesus, is surrendering my life to him, is giving him complete charge of my life because he saved my soul and gave himself to forgive me, and I realize that he's beautiful and good and powerful and wise, 
And he deserves my trust and my worship. And that comes with challenge. It comes with difficulty. It comes with surrendering control of your life. It comes in some ways with added difficulty and even pain and suffering and maybe persecution in your life if you follow Jesus. But I need to tell you, listen to an old man, a father. Listen to me. It's worth it. It's worth it. It may not seem like it. When you pry your hands off the control of your life and surrender your life to Jesus may seem like a painful, difficult thing, but it couldn't be more worth it. I've been sinning for 59 years. Been at it a long time. And do you know I actually sin less than I used to? Now, I'm, I'm more aware of my sin than I've ever been. So sometimes it seems like I sin more than I used to just because I'm more aware of it. But I actually do sin less than I used to. And I can't even believe I was even tempted in some areas of sin in my life at one point in my life because I've grown in this. You know, it's important to realize that the big difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that Christians don't sin and, Christian, and non-Christians do. It's that we Christians can't really be fulfilled and happy staying in sin. And we have to go to Jesus with it and be freed from it. We can't bear living life with the burden of unrepentant, unconfessed sin. So we go to Jesus and we leave it at his feet. And so that's the radical difference. Where do you go with your sin? We've all got a sin problem. The question is, where have you gone with it? Or will, where will you go with it? We all have a broken relationship with God until Jesus restores it. So where are you in that? You know, we've been looking at this amazing book of Daniel. And we recognize that he is this amazing example to us of faithfulness. So let's go back in our Bibles. Let's look at chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, and we'll just quickly summarize this. Chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar has been this king we've been looking at, and he's back and forth like a ping-pong game between submitting to God, apparently, and then being all about himself and his kingdom. He comes to his senses. His kingdom's restored. We don't know the ultimate destiny, the ultimate eternal destiny of Nebuchadnezzar. But but I do want you to notice that after he comes to his senses and his kingdom's restored, I want you to listen to what he says in verse 36 of chapter 5. At the same time, he says, as he recounts, the experience of acting like an animal for a while, acting insane, becoming somebody who's lost his mind. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now he does end this way, I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. So he's humbled by God through this experience. But man, I still hear a whole lot about him and reflecting on that. My glory, my, I'm still not convinced he really gets it the way Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. And so he now is succeeded in the kingdom by his son, Belteshazzar. He comes to power. And he doesn't humble himself either. Look at chapter 5, verse 20, describing Belteshazzar's 
reign and what he's like. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. This is the description Daniel's giving Belteshazzar of what happened to his father, Nebuchadnezzar. He's explaining this to him. He says, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belteshazzar, have not humbled your heart, and this is really important, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. So the, the, the precious objects taken from the, the temple when Jerusalem is destroyed are being now used to party in their pagan ways. Dishonoring God in this way. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, stone, which you did not see or hear or know. But God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you've not honored. I think that's so important. He, what is Daniel saying? He said, you saw what happened to your father. You saw how God... God judged him and disciplined him and turned into, into a beast. You saw what happened to him. Yet you continue in the ways that got him in that mess. Now, I really want to talk to you about this. There are effects of certain ways of thinking that come from certain kinds of psychology and ways of thinking about who we are that trap you. What do I mean by that? Well... Well, say, say your father's abusive. Well, you're bound to be an abusive father, too. Say your parents got divorced. Well, you know what's waiting for you because that statistically perpetuates itself. The Bible even talks about this. Sin perpetuates itself generationally. It does. You know, if, if, if there, there's anger in a generation, it often gets passed down. There are some psychologists that say, you know, parenting's basically done by 18 months. You get all that stuff in there, all that love, nursing does it, you do all these things, and man, you get that kid on, off on the right foot, and, it, and, and what can happen is the reality of the way life goes a lot of the time can make you feel trapped. You know, my great-grandfather was an alcoholic, my father was an alcoholic, and I'm bound to be an alcoholic. That, that's the way people often think, and you can even sort of see that happen statistically and what can happen is you can feel trapped pornography use gets passed down in families and generations society then labels you maybe with different tests you take that that say you're this kind of person or that number in some test you take and and before you know it you feel locked in to a description that's been handed off to you Maybe by a previous generation or somebody who's evaluated you or a constant stream of the way people have talked about you in your life. And then you feel trapped and defined by that. And here's what I want you to know. You're not stuck. You're not trapped. There may be a wise understanding of inclinations you may have or have been modeled for you in your life. But the Bible never says you're stuck. It actually says the opposite. 
right? It doesn't say, well, Belteshazzar, what do you expect? Look at his father. His father had this horrible pride problem. Well, of course he has one too. No, what does it say? You saw what it did to your father. You should know better. You don't want that, do you? Look, if, if your parents have a bad marriage, you know, that can be really powerful to know exactly what you don't want. If you've seen the effects of, of anger or pride or lust or pornography or laziness, irresponsibility, if you've seen devastating effects of that, that could be an amazing example of what you don't want. And if you tap in to the saving power of Christ and the Spirit's work in your life, you are never stuck. No matter what you've gone through in your life, no matter what you've experienced, you are never trapped in some destiny based on things in your past, based on things maybe you've done, based on things you've allowed in your mind that come up constantly, and even though you seek a pure mind, they keep invading you, God can free you from that. It may be a process. You may need help in getting there, but God can free you in the power of the gospel, in the power of the Spirit. You are never stuck. You're never trapped. Some of the people God has transformed most radically in my life and used most powerfully come from really rough backgrounds. And experience some really hard things. And they know exactly what they don't want their lives to look like. You're never trapped. Belteshazzar is not trapped here in this life that he had been handed off by Nebuchadnezzar. And so, we move to chapter 6. And more amazing displays of Daniel's faithfulness. Because his faith was in his God. I want to highlight Daniel's faithfulness and consistency and excellence of living, but not to make Daniel the hero. Jesus is the hero Daniel and the rest of us need. So listen to chapter 6, starting at verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. What a cool thing to have said about you. And he, he's just being distinguished. He's, he's getting after it, serving God, stewarding the opportunities he has, even in exile in a foreign land. And he keeps rising to prominence. God keeps blessing him. People recognize that he is someone who is excelling. And it, at the heart of it all is his relationship with his God. And then the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Can you imagine? The high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They're jealous. They envy the prominence and the success. And if you succeed in life, people are going to push back. They're not going to like it. Their competitive spirit will not be inspired by you, but they'll want to pull you down. They'll want to pull you down to their level, and that's what happens. But I love this. But they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God. You know, I was in college, and I, yeah, I was on a team with a bunch of bad dudes. <laughs> they would get arrested with some regularity for things I don't even want to go into. Um, 
And, and I went to college with a lot of rough characters. And I played on the, the university's football team. And, man, the stuff these guys did. And, and, and I was able in college to walk a faithful path. Not perfectly, but distinctly. Differently. One of the guys I lived with, he was a really rough character. Very funny. And tough. He was an offensive lineman. And I remember I came in one night. I was at the library when they were having a big party at the house I lived in. And as the party was coming apart, I, I walked in. And this guy I lived with that I thought was my friend. I just looked at him. And he said, what are you looking at, you blankety blank Christian blank? And he didn't say blankety blank. I thought, where did that come from? I didn't know that was under the surface. Now he was pretty drunk. But still, that's in there, right? What was that about? I'd never done anything against this guy. So there can be a level of resentment that people have toward you. And it's not because he did anything wrong. You ever had that kind of conversation? So you're one of them Christians? Yeah. So you're really judgmental? No, I don't think so. Not really. I, I, I feel really wonderful I'm forgiven. I, that God, God has freed me from my sin. That I deserve judgment for. Oh, why are you so bigoted? Well, I'm not bigoted. I, I actually show a lot of grace to people. I mean, it, I'm, I've got issues and problems. but And it's just like, you hateful person. Why are you such a hater? I, why are you so angry? I, I'm not. Actually, you're making me angry by accusing me of all these things right now. You're going to fulfill your ideas about me. But, but it's amazing how there can be opposition. And then what do we do? We love. But we step up and we have an opportunity to love those who hate us. We'll talk more about this tomorrow night. But, but to be able to develop the ability to rise above the kind of vitriol that can come at a Christian simply because you're a Christian. Got to be ready for it. And that's what Daniel is up against here. Uh, and, and so then we pick it up in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, what document? Well, these guys go and say, look, if we're going to get Daniel in trouble, it's going to be related to his relationship with Yahweh, with this God he serves. And so let's get the king to make, make a law that you only can worship the king and the gods that he worships. And if you don't put him in the preeminent position, you will be thrown to the lions. And he signs it in a law, not realizing that his number one guy, his VP, is going to get in trouble because of it. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house, love this, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, still thinking about home, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He's not putting on a show. He's not starting to do this once this law gets passed. This is just how he rolls. He goes to God. He communes with God. He has a relationship with God at the heart of his life. And it gets him in trouble, but he does it anyway. 
He knew it would get him in trouble. Verse 11, then these men came by in agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition against any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or your injunction that you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And he didn't want to do it. He's distressed by this, but he's not, got no way out of it. So verse 16, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. He doesn't want Daniel to die. He's too important to him in his kingdom. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signer of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. He really values Daniel's presence, even though he can't get out of this legally. No divisions were, no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the lion's den. He had probably heard about, no doubt, the salvation of the three Hebrew boys from the fiery furnace and wondered if God might have done it again. And sure enough, he did. He came near to the den at the break of day where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared, Daniel, oh Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they've not harmed me because I, I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O oh, king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted his God. Is that awesome? Is that an awesome salvation? Once again, a victory of a faithful man living according to God and his ways, and he's persecuted, and God rescues him. It doesn't always end this way, though. There's a danger in these stories being told since Sunday school because you expect to be rescued every time. It doesn't always happen. God can certainly do it, and he gloriously does it sometimes, but think back to the words of the three guys in the furnace. God will save us, but if not, we're still not going to bow to your idols. That's the way of Christ, who set his face to go to Jerusalem and lay down his life for a bunch of rebels who hated God to save us from ourselves. That's what it's about. And so the bottom line for us, dear ones, is the good news of Jesus Christ in our place. That's what he does for us. And I want us to understand what it means to say Jesus took our place. It's called the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus has done everything we need him to. It's all grace. And I think that's why people find the Christian gospel offensive more than anything else. You contribute nothing to God's saving work on your behalf. Nothing. You don't earn it, you don't prove it, you don't make yourself worthy of it, you don't demonstrate anything. God does it for you when you hated him. When you were a rebel, he comes and saves you. Jesus dies so we could live. Look at Hebrews 9. It's an amazing passage. 
that we have here. Yes, do we have this, guys? There it is. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You may be right now in your life a follower of Jesus, somebody who's trusted Jesus in saving faith, and maybe you're in your own fiery furnace, your own lion's den, where, where you're feeling hopeless, you're feeling vulnerable. You're feeling uncertain about who you are and where your life's heading right now. But what you need to know is that if you're waiting for Jesus to go back, you're waiting for a sure thing. And he's going to come as the judge of the world and the one who makes all things well one day. But Jesus didn't just die for you, he lived for you. You realize that? Jesus didn't die in the manger for you. Why? Because he had to live a life of obedience in place of our disobedience. Look at this passage in Philippians 3. His perfect obedience takes the place of our disobedient lives. We're found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's this radical reality of the gift of salvation in Christ. Is It's trust. It's, it's turning from our sin. It's turning from our rebellion. Any self-effort to save ourselves, we turn away from that and reject it. It's called repentance. And we turn and we lean all our weight on Jesus. We depend on him. That's what faith is that really saves. It's not an emotional thing only. It's not an intellectual thing only, although it's those things. It's a matter of the will saying, not I, but Christ. He must increase, I must decrease, becomes the clarion call of our lives. And we trust him in saving faith that then defines us forever. That's what happens. It's by faith. And he obeys every time there's an opportunity to disobey. He's tempted in all ways as we are, yet was without sin, the Bible says. So he's gone through all the temptations we experience, and he overcomes them and obeys his Father every step of the way. And then by faith, his righteousness is given to us because he took on our unrighteousness. He took our place because he became one of us. He walked our dirty streets and lived life in this fallen and cursed world and took our place in his obedience. And then he most certainly took our place in his death as well. We need forgiveness, and that only comes through a sufficient sacrifice. In this other passage from 1 Peter, talks about this. Look at this. Jesus' death satisfies God's justice and pays the penalty for our sins. God just doesn't say, yeah, whatever, I don't care about your sin. I don't care about all the horrible stuff you've done. You know, I, I just let it slide. I'm chill. No, God's holy. God's just. Don't you want him to hate sin and evil? You, you probably hate sin and evil quite a bit. How about a holy God who's perfectly righteous and all-knowing and all-wise? Of course he hates sin and evil. Can you live in a world where God's not going to judge all the sin and evil in the world? I couldn't. 
but he is the judge of all the earth, and he pays the penalty for our sin that we needed to have paid for us. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See that? It's not just getting your sins forgiven so you can be forgiven. It's getting your sins forgiven so you can actually approach a holy God and be in a relationship with him where he loves you. As much as he can, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will never die but have eternal life. That's the promise God makes to you when you trust Jesus in saving faith, when you lean all your weight on him. He loves you as much as he can because he loves you in the son, but because by faith you have union with the son. And so this glorious good news is that Jesus lived for you and he died for you, but you know what else he did? He, raised, he was raised from the dead for you. And by faith, you can actually be forgiven and righteous and have eternal life guaranteed. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. Look at this amazing passage in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of work, so no one may boast. No one. Nebuchadnezzar's boasting, Darius's boasting, Belteshazzar's boasting is pitiful because it fails to recognize the God who created us gave us everything. And look at what the resurrection accomplishes. Look at this next passage. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you haven't trusted Jesus, you are physically alive but spiritually dead. You're a walking dead man. You're a walking dead woman. You're alive physically, but you're not alive spiritually. But in saving faith, you come alive. I have met so many of you this, this week who exude the life of Christ. It's awesome. Have you ever met someone? I, I, will, I will meet people frequently in airports and, and just at, at the grocery store, and I will look at them, and I'll, I'll go up to them, and I'll say, you're a Christian, aren't you? And almost every time they say, yeah, how'd you know that? And I said, because there's life in you that I've seen before. In other Christians, you become alive in a way you never were before when you trust Jesus. In his resurrection, his life brings that about. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him, his. When we baptize people at our church, we say, have you trusted Jesus? And Jesus alone in saving faith. And they say, yes, I have. And I say, then, based on your profession of faith in Jesus as your Savior, I now baptize you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we say, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And everybody loses their mind because it's this physical example of this inward transformation that's taken place in this person. And they publicly declare how much they trust Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. Look what Tim Keller says. It's great. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus conquered death, 
And in that brings you life and brings you righteousness and brings you forgiveness. He calls the shots. And then we need to align what we like and love with what he says is true. Jesus continues then to be our high priest in this way as well. So Jesus took our place. So um, I love my son Sam. Sam, you here? Sammy boy. Sam here? Did he leave? He left? Oh, man. So Sam, Sam is a curious kid. And, and I love curiosity. I think it's a, an incredible virtue. And, and he, he, Sam doesn't even like hearing a word without asking the definition of it. But, um, but I remember we were watching Barack Obama on television one time. And Sam said, who are those guys in the sunglasses next to the president? And I said, oh, Sam, those are secret service agents. And he said, tell me more. He was fascinated by it. It looked like the coolest job in the world. I'm actually told it's quite boring most of the time. But, but he said, tell me. So I love to feed curiosity. So I went and found a documentary on the secret service. And I showed it to him. And we got to a point in the documentary where Sam looked over and his dad was crying. He thought I'd lost my mind. Watching a Secret Service documentary and you're crying? Let me tell you why I was crying. Yeah, look at this picture. This is a hotel in Houston. That's Ronald Reagan leaving a hotel. And a man named John Hinckley shot the president about two seconds after this picture was taken. And... When John Hinckley shot the president, those Secret Service agents you see around him sprung into action. One dove on top of Reagan and pushed him into the limousine. Another one slammed the limousine door and then ran alongside it as it was, it was pulling away. President Reagan had been shot several times. And, and the Secret Service sprung into action. Now, see the guy on the right there? His name's Timothy McCarthy. And what he did is what made me cry. Why? That, that, that's Timothy McCarthy, young Secret Service agent, a uh, uh, second and a half before he did what he did that made Sam's father start to weep. You know what he did? As everybody is diving for cover, right? That, that's, that's what you do. You hear gunshots come. You can hear where they're coming from, and you do everything you can to get out of the line of fire. You, you dive behind cars and fire hydrants. You cover up. You make yourself small. Do you know what Timothy McCarthy did? He turned toward the sound of the bullets, and did this. He made himself as big as he possibly could. He did everything he could to take the hit so the president wouldn't. The interview that really set me off watching this, this documentary, a Secret Service agent said what, what Agent McCarthy did defies everything that comes naturally to a human being. Basic human intuition is self-protective. You, you do everything you can to protect yourself. And it takes years of training. It takes years of, of discipline to do what doesn't come naturally. And that's exactly what he did. He turned toward the danger and he got shot. And this is how he ended up in that scene. He survived, thankfully. But he took three shots to the torso. Now, 
you might have an idea of why I was so moved by that. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He learned obedience throughout his life through the things he suffered. He learned throughout his life to obey God and grow in his capacity for self-sacrifice to the point where he's in the garden before he goes to the cross the next day for us and he says, if there's any way this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And he grows to the cross. He takes our place. And we need to realize that God loves us so much that that was a sacrifice he happily gave. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The glory to God in the redeemed lives his life and death and resurrection would accomplish make him able to be joyful even on his way to a cruel cross to die for us and bear the sins of the world. We desperately need the love of a father. We're all orphans before we're adopted into his family. Russell Moore in his book Adopted for Life says that when Adam and Eve rebelled against the creator, the entire universe became an orphanage. And we reestablish a love relationship with our heavenly father when we trust Jesus in this way. So my daughter, Caroline, who's not here, is a very small person physically. She weighs about 95 pounds. She's 23, but she weighs about 95 pounds. Somebody said a couple weeks ago, yeah, she's 95 pounds physically, but she has a 300-pound personality. And that's true. But she's always been very little. Actually, I, I, my main nickname for her is Little One. I say, hey, Little One, how you doing? And one, and I always, when I, would, when I travel, I always try to get at least one of my kids to go with me. And Caroline was 10 years old, and then she was very little. And, and she was traveling with me on a trip where I was. And uh, I got up really early in the morning, and I was going to go down to the lobby and do some studying. And I walked by Caroline's bed in this hotel room, and I noticed that her blanket had fallen off of her. And... She was cold. She was still asleep. But, it, you know, you can be unaware of your needs and still have real needs. And this little girl had curled up as much as she could in this little ball to conserve her own body heat because she was really cold in the middle of the night. I could see, even see on her face that she was very uncomfortable. So without waking her, I very quietly went over and I picked the blanket up off the floor that had fallen off of her. And I put it on her and I tucked her in and made sure she was nice and warm now. And then I just gently touched her shoulder, and I prayed for her for a little while. And when I was done praying, I stopped and I looked at her, and I saw myself in her, this little girl. And I said, Lord, that's how you care for me. So often, I'm not even aware of my needs, but you're there all the time for me. Even when it seems like you're not, you are. You love me as a tender heavenly father, and you meet my needs and you care for me. We are able to go through life with a father like that, who loves us so tenderly and so powerfully and so wisely and so faithfully. But the way we have that relationship is through his son he sent to take our place. That's what this is all about. That's the good news at the very heart of everything else in the Christian faith. Jesus in our place that then brings the kind of tender, fatherly care we all desperately need. 
And so, I, I talked to you before about how many different sorts of people you get in a room like this. Some of you are strong, thriving, growing Christians. Some of you are struggling Christians. Some of you are people who think you're Christians, but maybe this week you've realized, you know, I just think I'm religious. I just think I, I try to be a good person. Like my told me, my mother realized when she was in her 20s, 27 years old, she became to realize that. Maybe you're here tonight saying, you know what, I just think I know some Bible information and I, I'm religious and I grew up in a Christian family, but this has never become my own. I've lived a pretty good life and I'm a nice person, but, but I've never really come to grips with my need for forgiveness from God through Jesus. Some of you came here knowing you weren't a Christian and maybe didn't have any interest in becoming one, but this week you've come to realize how much you need a Savior. And maybe you then have realized that Jesus is that Savior you desperately need. And some of you maybe aren't sure where you are in your relationship with God. I've been praying that no one would leave here unsure or unforgiven or without that kind of fatherly love and care you desperately need. Going through life without God as your father, there are some things worse than, worse than death. And going through life without God is that. And so without any hype, without any drama, without any manipulation, I want to give you an opportunity if you're not sure, if you want to trust Jesus for the first time, if you've come here and realize you're just a religious person, I want to give you an opportunity. We've been talking all week about being resilient Christians in an host, increasingly hostile culture. Well, this is about the least hostile environment you will ever express your faith in Jesus in. You will, you'll have overwhelming affirmation and encouragement in this. And, and I think it'd be an amazing thing to start your relationship with Jesus and saving faith with a public declaration of that by standing up and doing that. And so if, if I've been describing you at all in what I've just been saying, unsure about your relationship with the Lord, sure that you don't have one, but you want one, if that describes you, I would love to pray for you. And so would you stand so I can do that and pray for you if that describes you in any of those ways. This is, this is somebody who's not sure you're, you've got a relationship with God or you know you don't, but you want one starting tonight. If that's you, would, just, would you just please stand up? So I can pray for you. I, I just want to say, this is the most important Thing you'll ever do in your whole life and to start this way is an awesome way to start because if you can stand publicly and say I want to trust Jesus that's a great way to be able to live out your life faithfully and resiliently before him get in a church if you're not in one read the Bible regularly pray depend on other people to grow let me pray for you Lord I'm grateful for these dear young people who've express publicly their desire to trust you in saving faith. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and bless and protect and provide for them in awesome ways where they're able to hit the ground running in their relationship with you and they never look back. They never wonder if it was worth it. They never wonder if this isn't the best life they could ever enter into, even with the challenges and struggles that come our way. 
Lord, they become exiles now. They become yours. And so, Lord, I pray that you would enable them to grow and flourish wonderfully in their lives and that they wouldn't wait to start becoming ministers and proclaiming the goodness of what you've done to them and for them. And so I commit them to you. Provide for them in awesome ways, I pray, Lord. Bring others around them to encourage and bless and pray with them and for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen. I just want to read these lyrics to you we're about to sing. I've carried a burden for far too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. I see it now. I'm laying it down. And I know I need you. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. No reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father. Again and again, you saw my condition, had a plan from the start. Your son for redemption, the price for my heart. And I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand. I can't comprehend. All I know is I need you. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with hiding. No reason to wait. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, For anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. For those of you that put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. God has saved you. He has transformed you. He has caused you to be born again. Just as Eric was saying at the end of his sermon there, now is the time to live as a new creation. Sometimes we think that this Christian thing is just something we put in our Instagram bio, but it transforms us completely. So we have the ability now to actually live for him. And in verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God Jesus, when he went to the cross, he didn't just die to forgive your sin. But he gave you his righteousness. He gave you his righteousness. So at the end of our lives, when we stand before God, the most important question that we'd be asking ourselves is, someone going to be standing in my place? Is Jesus Christ going to stand in my place because the Lord knows that I couldn't do it on my own. Lord knows that I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave this place open. If you guys want to stay back, process this decision that you've made. Or maybe you're still kind of wrestling with wanting to follow the Lord. I encourage you guys to stay back and talk to your counselor. And if you made this decision to follow the Lord, I pray that and I hope that you would know that this is an amazing thing and that your brothers and sisters want to celebrate that with you. 
But I ask that when we leave this place and go to our cabins, because there's no free time after this, you guys are going to head straight to your cabins, that for the rest of us that aren't staying in this place, that you would leave silently, that you would leave in a discipline of silence, and out of respect for the people that are making this decision or have made this decision, which means that when you guys walk out of those doors, you would wait to have your conversations a little bit further from this place. I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then we're going to leave this place open for the rest of you. Head to your cabins in a discipline of silence. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to fathom even in my own life as I reflect and look at your grace and your mercy that you've had on me out of all the sins that I've committed and as I reflect and know all the compromise, all the times that I knew I was doing wrong and chose to anyway. But I have a heavenly father that sent his son to not only forgive me of my sin, but to rise again that, my, that I may have life. I'm just recognizing that now, Lord. I just worship you and I thank you for that. And I know many of the people in here thank you for that. And so for anybody who maybe thinks it's too late to surrender their lives to you, to become new creations, to be born again, Lord, I pray that those people would recognize that it's not too late God, it doesn't have to be in this moment. But Lord, I pray that you would convict their heart, that they would recognize. Why should we wait? Why should we wait to give ourselves to you? Why should we wait to give our lives to you? I pray that we would do that now. And Lord, I know making this decision requires more It doesn't require more, but Lord, if we truly believe you and truly have surrendered our lives to you, it means that we'll live like it. It means that we will follow after you, not perfectly, but each and every single day, that you'd be sanctifying us, that you'd be making us more like your son, Jesus. So God, I pray that you would remind us of that this evening. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the work that you've done in this place. And in Jesus' name, amen.